Welcome back to the Stories Unleashed podcast. Um, and thank you very much for watching uh, the last few episodes. Today, um, we have a very special guest. Um, he lives in uh, my hometown of Hawke's Bay, Hastings. Um, and he's an expert in uh, the language that my native people speak, te reo Māori, um, and all things to do Māori. We have Jeremy Tātere McLeod. Um, bro, thank you very much for joining us. Um, super keen to get you on and just to be able to speak to you about um, the kaupapa, which is te reo. And um, I know that I'm on my real journey at the moment, and um, it's been an oh, awakening journey and... Um, quite an emotional one too to sort of connect um back to my own roots so um yeah i just look forward to the chat that we're going to have today um bro did you want to start from the beginning so maybe just um for those who may not know who you are just give us a bit of a um a bit of a, a update about you know we we grew up and and your story and stuff like that uh kia ora um, thank you for the opportunity to jump on, bro. I'm, I'm flattered that you think that I may be able to contribute something to your podcast. Um, my name's Jeremy Tatere McLeod. Uh, both of my parents are Māori and Pākehā. Um, so my mum hails from, primarily hails from a coastal settlement in Hawke's Bay called Waimarama. That's where our marae is, Waimarama. And the iwi here is Ngāti Kahungunu which um, stretches from Wairua in the north to Wairua in the south. My father primarily hails from Te Arawa, from the, the, the Rotorua Lakes district. But as I mentioned, I have heavy European ancestry as well. So my, my father's father was European, hence why my surname is McLeod. My mum is McDonald slash McGregor slash Kershaw blood. So yeah, but mum mum and dad's tapestry of genealogy also connects me to several tribes throughout the country, but I'm not going to list them all. I mean, for example, I'm wearing a shirt um, of my marae and picked in my te ateawa marae. Um, I, there's three of us in my family. I have two sisters, one older sister and one younger sister. Um, Sorry, I have five siblings. No, there's five of us. <laughs> so I have a brother and a sister um, who uh, were to a previous marriage of my father. And then my sister, my older sister, my younger sister, the three of us who grew up together. Um, my parents moved to Australia in the 1970s, the late 70s. They migrated there. They were both um, in relationships at the time, which ended. And then they met on the Gold Coast in 1980, I think. So I was born in 1986, born and raised in Brisbane. My sister below me was born in 1989. Did all my schooling in Australia. Um, we grew up pretty much disconnected from our culture. Um, language wasn't even a part of our house. So there were no customs. Oh, we kind of practiced some Māori customs now that I look back. There were some Māori customs, um, but we were totally disconnected from our culture. So, um, yeah, that's just a bit about myself. I won't delve in too much, but born and raised in Australia. And when I returned here, I came back to my Kahunganu side here in Hastings. Father, so, so with that little connection to your culture and, and the real and stuff, like, was that what like, gave you a big push to even go further in, into it and once you got back to New Zealand? Yeah, I think growing up in Aussie, when I grew up in Australia, there wasn't a lot of Māori people like there is today. I mean, all you've got to do is just walk down a street in Australia and all you see is, is, is tattoos. Mm. 
But when I was growing up, um, there wasn't many Māori in our community. And my parents were quite picky on which Māori we associated with. You know, my parents kind of weren't keen on joining these pan-Māori initiatives um, in the 90s, building marae. Like, they kind of dodged that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, but it was probably the early 2000s that they started to get friends that were moving over. Like, um, the Tawana Meatwork shut down here in Hastings, so a lot of families were migrating to Aussie. Um, growing up at school, I always knew we were different. I always knew that we were Māori. We had Māori um, tourist things in our home. I knew from a couple of things that um, we, we did have a different culture. Uh, we'd get VHS tapes of haka and things, and we would watch those. And so we, we knew we weren't, sorry, well, we felt we were Australian because we were born there, but we knew we were Māori. Um, but I always had a, um, a longing for my culture. It was probably driven by my fascination of genealogy. I was always pretty keen on genealogy, who the old people were. Mum had old, old photos of the old people, and I was always intrigued from as young as I can remember. So that was probably what triggered my fascination was uh, genealogy, first of all. Then it was haka. I'm not a haka person now, but haka was what sort of, mm. you know, those hairs stand up on the back of your neck, and I was like, oh, what is this? What is this feeling? Now I know that that's all that ihi and mihi. But the language, the, the longing for the language was sort of born out of that fascination around the culture. Yeah, bro. Well, that's that's kind of similar to me. Like, um, like my first introduction to sort of like Māori and te ao Māori was, was through haka at Hastings, boys, because I went to Frimley Primary and it, at the time when I was there, it was literally like no Māori there. And then I, I actually, because I've got my mum's um, Māori from from Waido as well, but her her mother's from Yorkshire um, in England. So I always felt almost more Pākehā than I did Māori for a while. And mm. then once I went to high school and integrated to Kapahaka, it kind of sparked my journey there. Um, what was the first thing that you got yourself involved in with to do? Or was it just like, the, the casual class here and there or did you go speak to your own whanau and and learn from them or what, how did that sort of spark uh i think uh when i was in high school my dad had an uncle and aunt so my, my father was totally disconnected from his culture so his mother was a full-blood maori and she died when he was seven she died in 1968 oh, wow. and they were raised by their pakeha father and he raised them in a place called ford block in rotorua so, you know, the whole Once for Warriors yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was based on that. So he was totally disconnected. But his mother had a brother that came to visit us in around 2001. And it was a really eerie trip. He was a, he was a Koroa and, and, and his wife came. And it was almost like a reclamation journey. My father had four siblings. Well, he had eight. And pretty much six of them had moved to Australia. But five of them grew up together. And they all moved to Australia. And they were all disconnected. And, and when he came, it was a really emotional journey. It was, a, it was like he was reclaiming us. And he was trying to, and they gifted us with this heitiki. Actually, it was this heitiki that's become this talisman, I guess, for my, for my family in Brisbane. They, they absolutely adored this heitiki. But anyway, that was our first exposure to the language. When they came, they would speak Māori casually amongst themselves with their grandchildren. They all had Māori names. So for us as Aussies, we had to learn how to hongi, we had to learn how to pronounce their names, but that was the start. 
that was they planted the seed. This is my Walker Fano from Tealawa. They planted the seed. And then another auntie came back just as I was finishing high school. And, and she said, you know, dad said that this boy, there's something weird about this boy. There's something there. You should send him home to learn to deal. So I did. I, when I finished high school in December 2003, I said to my dad, I, I, I want to go back to New Zealand. I want to learn to deal. And I did. I took the leap of faith. 28th of January 2004, I jumped on a plane and I flew to Palmerston North, said goodbye to my family, had this big tonguey at the airport. Uh-huh. My mum my mourned for days. Um, and I moved here to Hastings to my mother's mother, to my grandmother. And she was a quirky old thing. She was in her late 70s and she was set in her ways. So those were challenging times living with my grandmother. But February, I just dived in head first. I went to EIT Hawke's Bay and I joined the certificate program and just went head first. And the first day we had the poor heady, we were welcomed onto the Mariah. I didn't know anything that was being said. And then the next poor heady, an hour later, was where we welcomed all of the um, faculty students, new students, and we were thrown straight into the kapahaka. And we had to toya, my te waka, and all this stuff. And we, I knew nothing. But I went head first. And I actually studied, um, I did the certificate. 2005, went into the degree. 2006, degree. 2007, got my BA Māori. 2008, went into Te Institute of Excellence in the Language. 2009, went back and did my honours. 2000, yes, that was my lang- that was my journey. And, and only last year, I graduated with my PhD, which was in, in Te Reo Māori. And that's, uh, what am I now? How many years have I been here now? 17 years, 18 years? This, oh, right. this year so i've been here more than half my life now but what was that like like that must have been a stressful move just you haven't been to new zealand before you're just literally going all the way by yourself like what was it did you have to like meet new people as well like even whanau and stuff like what was that like yeah it was really it was i think i was quite lucky because i had already researched the whakapapa i had an idea of who was who in the zoo sweet kind of ish and I made a concerted effort to meet as many people as I could. And then I started connecting further and further and further. So my Marai Waimarama was like, how am I related to you? Ah, right, okay. So I was trying to connect the dots. I haven't done that on my father's side yet. So there's still, my father's side in Rotorua, 17 years later, I still haven't done that. I know my immediate relations, but I don't know anyone. And when I do go back there, it feels like when I first went to my Marai Waimarama, Oh, but I made a concerted effort to get to know people, had to make friends. Um, did you have an accent too? Like, did you have an Aussie accent and yeah, everything? But I made a concerted effort to ditch it as fast yes. as I could because <laughs> I did. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to sort of um, like a chameleon. They reckon as chameleon as someone who will, will, will take on the accent and the idiosyncrasies of those people. I didn't want to be different. So I tried to ditch my Aussie accent as fast as I could be normal because I was never going back I think my, my parents thought that I would find it too hard there were challenging times like I said my dear grandmother was very quirky and there were many times that I wanted to leave and go home to mum and dad but I just stuck it out and um, I only had to live with her for a year and then I was able to move in with another auntie where there was much more freedom and independence which made things a little bit more palatable especially probably when you're younger and whatnot eh? oh, yeah. um was there ever a, a, a time where, you know, that wasn't going to be, you know, the path that you took? You, you you thought maybe I could have been something else or was there anything else that you thought you had a real interest in, in turning out to be your career? 
I've been really lucky, to be honest, because when I look back at my journey over the last 17 years, it seems so surreal and so extraordinary. And it's always something that I kind of refrain talking about because it's sort of like blowing one's own trumpet. But to have someone come from Australia, four years you get your BA, the fifth year you're invited to the prestigious Institute of Excellence in the Maori language, six years you've got your honour, seven years in you're appointed as the director of the tribe's Maori language revitalization strategy. So I was 23 years old. The only experience I had was seven years of working at Cresbourne Packhouse and Apple Packhouse at night. Uh -huh. So that I could, I had enough money to study during the day. So study during the day, work through the night. Um, and then to sit in the driver's seat in 2010 uh, and then masters and then to get my PhD last year, like that's quite an extraordinary journey. I um, mean, for a tribe, for a big tribe to place their faith in a kid that was born in Aussie to then tell the tribe how to revive the language, that was a huge leap of faith by Mika Faitiri, who was the CEO at the time. But I've had fantastic teachers. I've been taught by some of the best. And I think now that where my wife and I are sitting now in an office where we're running out language and consults, language and cultural consultancy, um, I never thought. I, I kind of always dreamt that I'd go somewhere, but back in the days working at the pack house and studying during the day, I, I didn't think I would end up here. Oh, and being the chairperson of my marae now as well, that takes up a lot of spare time. And my wife and I have established two kohanga reo that I've been the chairperson of. So it's been a really surreal trip, journey. Yeah, well, when you put it that way, that that pretty much everyone put their faith in someone that wasn't born in New Zealand, like it seems like even crazier. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about the revitalization that's been happening in, in Kohunganu and, and that journey and, and what's that what's entailed within that? Yeah, when I started in 2010, I had inherited a strategy that was about five years old. So it was launched in 2006 and I inherited it in 2010. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to revamp the strategy some three years later and, and um, and take it to where I thought it needed to go. And I've been in the driver's seat for 11 years now, 12 years, actually, 12 years this year. Um, and it probably is time for some fresh blood soon. But I just don't feel that it's at the stage where I, where I had um, dreamt it would be. But basically, um, a language revitalization strategy is about how can you reinstate a language um, where it is um, intergenerationally transmitted within the home. So how can the language be naturally transmitted from generation to generation in the home where it's spoken normally and the language is caught? It's not actually taught. You're not learning a language. You're not teaching a language. You're just naturally using the language because that is the language within a home. And the hardest thing for Ngāti Kahungunu is I think uh, behind the South Island tribes, we were one of the, um, you know, the, the tribes that suffered great losses in the North Island. We weren't that far behind the South Island. Um, I think that the, you know, the, the loss of language here, especially in the Hawke's Bay district, south to Wairarapa was huge. And, um, and it wasn't far behind those South Island tribes. So it's been an interesting um, journey. And remembering that here in Kahunganu, we've got some homes where the language hasn't been used for three to four generations. And the rule of thumb when it comes to language planning is it takes one, it simply takes one generation to lose a language, and then it takes three generations to re revitalize a language. 
So I think, um, you know, the generation, my generation, and perhaps one above me might be the first generation of kohanga reo babies, or it might be my generation, actually. So that really is the first product of um, post-language renaissance, which was the mid-70s. And is that, is, that where it, is that where it starts, like at the kohanga level and then on to kura kaupapa and, and wharikura and stuff like that? Or do you think it just varies and dependent on the place and the situation? I think there's many ways to skin a cat, and I think there's different strokes for different folks. I think the ultimate... Um, audacious goal of any language revitalization strategy is that the language is spoken. It's a language that is used and the language that is spoken every day, because that's the only way a language can survive. The language won't survive by uncle doing the same whaikora at the marae. The language won't survive by people singing pene pene at hui. The language won't survive by simply sending your kids to kōhangareo and treating it as a babysitting club. That, that what what the the uh, the the hardest thing is 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 switching and 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 helping people overcome those barriers that we all have deep within our puku. We all do. We all have language insecurities. We have intergenerational shame. We we feel we should know the language. We don't want to try and use the language because it's a very uncomfortable space. Uh, you feel inadequate. You feel out of your depths. You feel uncomfortable and no one likes venturing into uncomfortable spaces so i think it's there's an emotional issue here it's a mental and an emotional block and that's the hardest thing to overcome and once you can overcome that um, you'll notice that the language will start flowing but it's not easy it's not easy using a a, a minority language where you're surrounded by the dominant language because the dominant language is the language of convenience. And sometimes the minority language that we're all striving hard to revive becomes the, the cumbersome and the, and, the, and the tough work language. It becomes a chore. And, and, and speaking Māori shouldn't be a chore. Mm-hmm. Speaking Māori should be natural. And, and I don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime. I hope that it may be in my son's lifetime. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if we're quite there yet. Um, can we talk a little bit about... Um... So with Kahunganu, where, where do you see um, see it going? The language, um, the language going in the next at least five to ten years. Like, what's what's the big goal? What's what's the um, on the agenda for you? I'm a realist. So as much as I like to dream big, I'm also a realist, and I understand that um, Te Reo Māori will never ever be the primary language within Kahunganu. Te hoiho, the horse is bolted. So. In order to reinstate Te Reo Māori as the primary and as the sole um, language of communication amongst the tribe um, may never happen. So what I think we need to do and what we need to continue doing, which is something we've done well, is building pockets of language champions. And that's something that we founded our company on here, Kauaka Limited, was based around providing um, mahi opportunities and investing back into the region by providing employment for a lot of those rangatai that have come through iwi kaupapa. I think we can continue role modeling the language, we can continue inspiring. And uh, and I think a lot of those rangatai um, champions that I speak about that have come through iwi wānanga, kurereo, and all those wānanga, they're all out there. They hold very um, influential positions now within the tribe. They're teaching or they're sitting in offices in Wellington or they're slowly coming home. One by one, they're slowly coming back to the Bay because um, the, 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 the power within the provinces is a lot bigger than what it used to be. And I think under this Labour government, 
certainly um, te reo Māori has thrived under this government uh, and, um, and I, I'm not sure if, if it will continue to thrive should the government change. I just think we need to keep investing in our people and keep creating language champions. That's what the tribe needs. And when I speak about a language champion, it doesn't mean that you have to be a, a grammarian. It doesn't mean you have to be a um, linguistic expert. That's not what it is at all. Being a, being a language champion is about um, being willing to go over and above and champion the language and challenge the status quo. And I think language activism comes in all shapes and sizes. It, it doesn't mean that you're waving your confederation flag outside the House of Parliament. That's not the only face of activism. Activism can mean um, challenging from the inside out, you know, all of those sorts of things. Mm. And, and when you look at the 1970s, some of those people that were at the forefront of that language, um, uh, what's the word? I mean, they were brave uh, and courageous people and many of them weren't speakers of the language. So that's what I think it is. I think it's inclusivity. And I think it's about um, building language champions, but also remembering in order for a language to survive, it has to be used. You know, we continue to talk about the language, but we actually have to talk in the language. We have to take the leap of faith and dare to be uncomfortable. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree, bro. Um, do, do you want to talk to us a little bit about your 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 business and stuff as well? Maybe um, uh, get it out there as well and, let, let more people hear about it. Yeah, no, but I mean, Kowaka was a company that my wife and I established. And I said, because the word Kowaka is a medium or a channel. So it can be used for, I mean, the old people would have these things called Kowaka where they believe that they could be a channel to the spirit world. But what I've done is I've used the word Kowaka as an opportunity to channel resource and invest back into the region mm. and invest back into those people that, um, that have, that have, huge student loans because it's cost us to go and learn our language and they're literally on the bones of their asses because it's a hard work going to learn your language you know financially emotionally mentally physically you know the anguish is real so we established this company to take on some ministry of education contracts and give mahi back to these people but what a lot of the work that we're doing now is in mainstream mainstream teachers through te ahu te reo, um, trying to uh create language champions in a world of people that have never set foot into te ao Māori. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing at the moment. We're enjoying that. We're also trying to build this company so we become the leading cultural and language um, consultancies, consultancy here in Hawke's Bay and continue to grow the economy in Hawke's Bay uh, and continue to, um, to, um, to take our people with us you know, this has never been a get rich scheme for us. It's about how do we provide mahi opportunities for these people so that they will come back to the language and they can make a good living out of it. That's always been our dream. Mm. Um, what, what are some of the biggest uh, mistakes you see, um, not just from beginning real speakers, but also some of the some of the more seasoned speakers? And what, what is something that you think needs to be a bit more... Um, uh, put clearly maybe uh, I don't know if that's the right word but um, did you want to speak a little bit about that or maybe even just the tips and tricks of the of the deal I think um, as I said to learn a second language is hard work so you know you have to be prepared for the mental spiritual emotional and physical anguish it's not easy 
it's not easy stepping into an uncomfortable space. You have to become vulnerable again. You have to go back to being a student. You have to be prepared to make mistakes uh, and you have to face um, criticism and judgment. So I think it, it's not for the faint-hearted, but it is rewarding. It is a lot of fun learning a second language. If you can find a supportive community of learners um, who will support you in your journey, you know, you can make it fun. I think for fluent speakers, we can't we we sometimes have um this kind of fluency amnesia we we tend to forget what it was like in the infant stages of our own journeys and i'm always cognizant of that with anything i do with any language um, initiatives that i establish i always try and take myself back to the 16th of february 2004 how i felt before going on to the marae vit how uncomfortable i was and I always try and make sure that whatever I'm doing is not that we mollycoddle people, we're, we're providing this, um, this field of dreams um, wonderland, not that at all, but you know, we have to make people comfortable to actually set foot into the world, you know, into the Māori language world. Um, and then also being realistic. I think you have to be realistic. Like I said to you, I was only 17, so I was able to go to EIT from nine to three and then go and work from at the Packhouse from 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. I had no ties, no children, no wife at the time, mm. um, and I was able to do it. So I think we have to be realistic. Time is our greatest commodity. And that's the other thing. If you want to learn a language, it takes time. Something has to give way. It's like the fitness journey. If you're going to go to the gym, something has to give way. And that's the same with the language. You're not going to lose weight by just having a Diet Coke with your Big Mac. You know, you <laughs> have to go a little bit more than that. And that's the same with the language. Something has to give way. You have to give something up. And you've got to, um, and for a lot of us, do we have spare time? How can we create spare time? What has to give way? That's the question, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and with the fitness journey, you know, there's heaps of times where you want to give up, but you've got to stick it through to, to reach your end goal. Um, have you have you learned like any other languages or like have you been able to you know dabble in anything else that is similar or has given you even more of a perspective in, in Tereo? So I, I learned Japanese when I went there on a scholarship in 2006. I spent three months living in Japan up in Hokkaido in Tomakomai, which is the sister city of uh, Napier. Um, had I have stuck it out for another three months, I think I would have learned a lot more um, but learning the third language I wish I continued actually but Japanese was a was a total different kettle of fish because you had three alphabets as well that you had to learn so it wasn't just the language you had hiragama katakama and kanji and and that was really complicated I struggled with that but um, I found when I was there that a lot of the Japanese people wanted to learn English from me and I'm like no 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 speak Japanese but they all wanted to speak English but I have dabbled in Japanese. I dabble in Cook Island Māori every now and again. I probably butcher it, to be honest, but I try my hardest because Cook it's Island similar, Māori. Eh? Yeah, and it's the closest living language to Te Reo Māori here. So Moriori would be the closest language, but that language is um, sadly um, on the brink of extinction, whereas Cook Island Māori is quite similar. So, yeah, I mean, I enjoy languages. Um, I'm 35 now. I don't know if I'm going to have the time to learn another language, but if I could go and live in Rarotonga for six months and learn that dialect, uh, learn that language, I'd be really happy. Yeah, very well. Uh, is it is it similar um, Japanese in some ways? Like, because I took Japanese in year nine, like I could take 
um, Japanese and, and Māori as my elective subjects. And um, our, our teacher said that it was a little bit similar in, in terms of, um, I don't know, maybe structure. I can't, I can't really remember, but... Very, very similar, um, very similar vowel soundings um, and their language too, everything ends on a vowel. Even some have silence, so desu, you know, watashi no namai wa jeremi desu. So there's a silent use. So just like Māori, none of Māori ends on a, on a consonant. All of our language ends on a vowel. So Japanese was really similar with a lot of their words. Not all, but a lot of their words um, ended on vowels, which is what I found as a, as a commonality with ours. But very similar um, vowel sound. I mean, they have a sh and all those other things. But, um, yeah, there was lots of things like etone. Um, like, you know, they use the ne the same way we do. So, yeah. But not all words, not all of their language ends on a vowel, but a lot of words do. And I found that um, as, a, as a commonality that I was able to connect to. But Japanese was an awesome language. I mean, I wish I would have continued. Mm, awesome culture, eh? Yeah. As well. Amazing Massive food. food. Um, yeah, nah, love Japanese. Um, what about speaking on on, on the marae? Um, I know as a as a Māori male, that, that's something quite significant. And um, I suppose everyone should probably be aspiring to at least get to a level where they feel comfortable and uh, I suppose respected to do so. Do you want to speak to us about that? Because, um, well, yeah, I just think that's that's one of the most important things about being Māori and, and a man as well. Well, I mean, the marae is the last bastion of the language in a lot of places. In a lot of communities, the marae is the only place where the language is heard and ceremony. You know, in many communities, that's the only time that you'll hear something where te reo Māori is the prime, it's the only language, or it should be the only language. Nothing grates me more than people speaking English on the pai pai. Um, so that should be a place where Māori is the only language in that welcoming ceremony. And I think the minute that we relinquish that, the minute that te reo Māori no longer becomes the sole language in pōhiri, we might as well um, commit our language to its ultimate um, fate. You know, that, that, that to me is why Malaya is so important. But uh, I think in, in many tribes, there is a picking order. There is a ranking order. There is a process you have to go through. We all hear about people saying, oh, you got to start out the back on the broom and on the pots or on the dishes before you move to the front. Um, sadly, that's not the reality on many of our marae. People who have a little bit of language, they're catapulted out the front because that's where the greater need is. I don't know if it's the greater need. There's a huge need in the back. But, you know, language expertise out the front is, um, is, 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 is quite, um, you know, quite depleted in a lot of our life. So I think there's that. There are some tribes um, who still have quite rigid protocols where you can't speak if your father's still alive, you can't speak if your older sibling's alive. Um, but in Kahunganu, that was a rule that was relaxed in 1976. And I've got the minutes of that hui where all of the great Rangatira Ngati Kahunganu met in Wairua for a four-day summit. And it was there that they said that, um, you know, whilst other tribes still adhere to those rigid constraints, Kahunganu doesn't have the luxury. It's really about who can, not who should, who can and who will. And that was in the mid-70s. So that goes to tell you that the foresight that they had then, they had to relax the protocols and the prohibitions to ensure that the language didn't die. I think speaking on the marae is a great honour. Um, and I first spoke on behalf of our tribe at the Koronehana, which is the greatest hui of Māori done every year in 2010 at the coronation of the Māori king. 
And that there is the most elite cream of the crop speakers. Well, it should be. It should only be the guns of every tribe because when you put up a speaker, the whole mana of the tribe rests on their shoulder, shoulders and their, their ability to, to practice the beauty and the depths of oratory that is fai kōrero. Only the best should speak for your tribe. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time. Um, I've been to many hui where every Tom, Dick and Harry's getting up and it's painful. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but, but we all have to start somewhere. And a lot of marae will allow people to start with smaller ope. You know, at Waimarama, go and get the koha, tēnā koutou. There you go. 101, welcome to the pipeline. You know? Yeah. yeah. Were, were you nervous that, that first time? Like, oh. is it like, even though you might have like a, a wide range of knowledge, do you still feel some... Oh, like yeah. Give you weight on you? Because you're sitting amongst the greats of Māori Dim, right? And you know that you only have one opportunity to speak, and whoever's after you has the opportunity to challenge whatever you've said, whatever you've said. And, uh, and you know, and when you're a new kid on the block, everyone's sort of, oh. you know, everyone's looking at you. And I remember my heart was beating out of my chest as it come down the pipe, you know, because it comes down, you're like, oh, God, oh, God, it's nearly me. Oh, oh God, oh, it's me. Here we go. So, yeah, and I remember my teachers were there, Dr. Late, Dr. Farihuya Muru and Sir Po Temara were there. And I still remember what uh, Dr. Farihuya Muru said to me when I went to shake his hand after the boy. He said, uh, well, uh, I think uh, you might have to go to the uh, Farepaku and check your undies, boy. <laughs> exactly what he said to me. I still remember it. And I was like, hell yeah. But, you know, those were, those were, um, and I mean, even now, but I think that when you get scared and you feel hesitation and you feel trepidation and you feel fear it's a good sign because it means you're not being complacent and it means that you're going to you're going to reach you're going to reach within to pull out all of those gems and that knowledge that you've learned all in the pursuit of upholding your iwi mama mm. and you're going to just get up on that pie and you're going to mow your way and you're going to make sure that your iwi mama is elevated through whatever you say. It's not about getting up and being the shag and saying, kawo, 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 me, 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 me. No, that's not what Fai is about. Mm. And first of all, have something to say. If you haven't got something to say, noho atukiro. Mm. That's the other problem. And, and you know, and, and the, the honest conversation is the male ego. The male ego lets us down sometimes. It can be our greatest letdown because every Tom, Dick and Harry wants to get up and flex their oratory muscles. And some of them just or to stay sitting down because it's just just waste people's time yeah i i can see i can see how that would happen with the male ego um did you um i know if we're, we're, we've only got a little bit left um in time but did you want to speak to us a bit about um panikiritanga because i know my partner was wanted to do it but the year she finished school it finished um she's luckily she's teaching at a kura down here in Christchurch um and her co-teacher um done panikiritanga with you I think actually Hirangi um uh, yeah I think so um one of the twins yeah 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 so she's teaching with him and and she tries to get as much out of him as possible and learn as much of him um but you know, I know it's it's an amazing cope of it because I've watched a few documentaries myself, and um, I see um, Ta Timoti and 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 his teachings are amazing, and 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 he's so sharp as well in terms of mm -hmm. his tongue. Um, can you talk to us about your experiences with that? 
that was a school that was established in 2004 under the mantle of, of Sir Timotikari to Dr. Farihuya Milroy and now Sir Potemara. Um, and what they wanted was is they wanted a, a learning institution that wouldn't sit under universities firstly, so that it wouldn't be choked by academic red tape. Um, secondly, a place where those who were fluent in the language could go and reach another pinnacle of excellence in the language and customs. Um, it didn't go without severe criticism from a lot of people because what they did is that they revived a lot of ancient words that hadn't been used. They were accused of elitism, that they had created an elite ilk of Maori language speakers who were unapologetically middle class because they could afford to go there. Um, they criticized them based on creating or reviving old words that people couldn't understand and creating new words. Um, they were criticized on creating clones and all sorts of things that came that way. But Panikiritanga had some 17 intakes, I think. I was in the fifth intake. Um, and Panikiritanga, um, that changed my life. It changed my perspective. And remembering that I had only been learning the language for five years. So I was, relative, I was a relatively blank canvas. I didn't have all of these um, common errors that were ingrained into me. So, you know, it took me to a new level of understanding. It took me to depths of, of philosophy that many could only dream of. It challenged us. Um, it, it, it forced us to, to leap into a very uncomfortable space. And it wasn't just the language. It was also the customs on the marae. So we all had to learn how to whaikoro, tokotoko, and various rako. We were challenged on why did we turn that way? Why did you say that? Why did you do this? Why did you da 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 da? Timoti would take us through the language um, and learning a lot of words that we, we couldn't understand. So, but one thing that I'm always indebted to Panikiritanga to was my tribal um, allegiance and my tribal pride is what was born out of Panikiritanga. So people think you go there and you're just cloned with this homogenized, um, standardized language. It's not even. I left Panikiritanga um, with a fire in my belly to go back and help my people. And that was and that was under the mantle of those of those greats. And still today, I still spend a lot of time with Timothy, and he's still one of my mentors. Um, to most people learning the language, he would petrify them, but to me, I'm 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 accustomed to his sharpness and his brash. Uh, I don't know what the word is. But he can be quite tough at times, yeah. but I respond well to that. So that was Panikiritanga. And then from that came Te Matapuninga, which was another one under the tutelage of Po Temara, where he selected 12 of us, um, where he wanted to create a kahui of tohunga, where he would teach us all of his karakia tafito and all of his knowledge around karakia and farewananga. And that took me to another dimension. Mm. My understanding of Te Ao Māori just... It took me to another parallel, really. It sounds like just like unreal just to be in that environment with those types of people too. Like that would not only their teachings, but the people around you would also help elevate you and making those connections with different people as well. Yeah, I've made some lifelong friends through Panikiritanga and still today, still today, some of my best friends and my brothers um, were relationships that I forged. And when I speak about my brothers, I speak about people like Dr. Rani Matamua, Leon Blake, Dr. Korohere Ngāpō, Paraone Gloin. You know, these are people that I consider my blood brothers. Mm. And, um, and those relationships, Pania Papa, who I, I mean, I call her Tuene, but she's almost like a, a mama figure, you know, to us. 
Hanno Regan, Dr. Hanno Regan, you're living in her in her nick of the woods. Mm. You know, we've created these lifelong relationships where whenever we see each other, we naturally just speak Māori. So when we're forced to speak English, it's quite foreign to us. You know, but yeah, that that that's been one of my greatest um my greatest memories of Panikiritang. And I'm very lucky because my wife and I are here in Hawke's Bay. We're with Timothy in his golden years. We see him a lot. Um, and, and we're lucky because through all of this COVID stuff, and I'm and my language continues to grow with him um, and being around him. So we're really lucky. I miss Farihuya and I miss Po. I haven't seen Po in a long time. I miss my teachers, but I know that we what we're doing is we're we're bringing to fruition what they taught us. I mean, mm. they they work their guts off to teach us, and uh, and 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 they always challenged us that we had to be better than them because that's a compliment, right? And if I could be half as great as those three men before I take my last breath, then um, I'd die happily. Um, just just my last question there. So would you lean lean a lot on, on, your, on your brothers, um, as you say, should you need their, their help or maybe their expertise and stuff like that? Are you leaning on them quite a lot in terms of when you need it? Yep, I sing out to them. They sing out to us. We're there for one another. We've got a Facebook chat where we can go in there and we can just be clowns. Mm. We can just be normal. Because quite often when we do see each other at formal gatherings, we're in the public eye and, and you know you you have to undertake our our roles and responsibilities with professionalism. Mm. But um quite often, you know, we'll we'll catch up and that's where we're able to just be ourselves, be clowns, lean on each other, um, be there for each other, support networks. And I mean, my brothers, they're amazing people. Like what Dr. Rangi Matama has done with Matariki, what Parauni Gloin has done in, in all of his kaupapa, what Dr. Korohere Ngāpō has done in, in Hauraki, what Leon Blake's done with the language with Pania Papa. Like, I, I admire them. Um, I, I really look up to them. Uh, and, I, and I'm so grateful for their brotherhood because um, I think we need that. You need those supportive networks. Well, otherwise, I go back to Timoti, and Timoti will always... You know, he'll impart you with some pearl, he'll impart some pearls of wisdom. And yeah, but I think that's imperative to have a, a supportive community of friends um, and people who can help you. And when you get and you need sound boards, sounding boards, you need places where you can go and float ideas. You know. Mm. Um yeah, yeah well, I've I watched um the Taringa podcast, I watched your episode on there and uh well. Parane is a, he's a hard case too on there. So make sure you guys check that out as well. Um, I've got some quick fire questions for you. Hi. Um, what um, are your top three songs in your playlist? Oh, I love old Fuddy Daddy songs. One of them would be Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. The other one oh. would be Loving You by Minnie Ripperton. And the third one would probably be What a Fool Believes by Michael McDonald and the Doobie Brothers. Well, Dreams... Um, Oh, I love that song. They um, I went to the LAB concert down here, and they done a rendition of that with um in the air, like they played oh. in the air first. Oh, <laughs> it was. It's it was quite amazing. a dreams is a special song for me because when when I lost my mum uh, in two thousand and eighteen, she lost her battle to cancer, and that was actually the last song we played before she took her last breath. So it's always a song that means a lot to me. That dreams. No, it's a, it's an amazing song. Um, someone that oh, I think you've already explained it, but someone that you look up to or someone that's inspired you. My late father, 
my parents. So that's been the hardest part of my journey is that um, I lost my dad at 52 in a vehicle accident in July 2013. And then I lost my mum five years later on my birthday, September 2018 to um, cancer. She was only 61. So my parents. Um, your greatest achievement? Having children or well, getting married and having children. I now have three. Few brownie points of that answer. Eh? <laughs> um, the best piece of advice you've ever received. Best piece of advice. Um, on my wall here in my office, I just had it printed. It was my English teacher in 2003. She was she had a doctor, Dr. Marilyn Hume, said success is an is an ephemeral gift. Some have it in their very bones, and some do not. And that's what she said to me. And you have it. Can, what you say? You have it in spades. Oh wow! What a compliment, too. Yeah. Um, would you rather go back in time or go to the future? Go back in time, and I feel like I have sometimes. I don't claim to be an astro traveler, but I feel in my dreams and things that I've spoken with my ancestors. And if you ever come to my house, it's like a fare mate. There's photos of dead people everywhere because I believe the minute that people stop mentioning your name and stop talking about you that's your second death and there's no return from that mm. well that's kind of like um i don't know if you've seen the disney movie coco have you seen that movie it's um it's a spanish like sort of or mexican sort of movie and they speak a bit, bit about that like the day of remembrance and putting up someone's photo um and remembering that person through that throughout the generations and if you know they're not remembered then you know that's their second death it's yeah. quite interesting. Um, favorite movie or TV show? My favorite TV show, actually, the most recent one was The Squid Games. I loved that. It was really out the gate and I really enjoyed it. Favorite movie, my all time favorite movie would have to be this is really out of it The Truman Show. The Truman Show? Yeah, I loved it. It was buzzy. <laughs> um, and last question if you were stranded on an island by yourself, what are three things that you would want to have with you? Jeez. <laughs> a generator. <laughs> if I was stranded on an island, what are three things that I want to have with me? Well, a tent would be nice. A blanket. Oh, gosh, food and clothes. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'd probably try and swim off the island. I can imagine nothing worse. I'd be a terrible Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> um. Well, Bo, thanks. Thank you very much for jumping on. Um, I appreciate it so much. And it's always good to speak with people from back home as well. And um, yeah, I know we've got probably a few people in common that we know from the Bay. Um, but no, it's just awesome to be able to hear your knowledge and your wisdom and hear also from someone that's trying to learn the deal that, you know, it wasn't your first language and, and that it is possible to to pick it up if you if you have the I suppose the determination and the commitment and the drive to want to do so. Um, so I, I, I reckon that's going to encourage a lot of the viewers out there. And um, if you want, did you want to chuck out um, just a bit of a sponsorship for yourself where they can find you or, or your business? <laughs> well, if you want to have a look, we're at um, Um But um, yeah, give it a go. And I guess my last message just quickly is, is to Pākehā, to non-Māori, this language will only survive with your support uh, and you will feel that that is the language of this country and it is part of our fingerprint of Aotearoa and the tide is turning 
and I know it is, and there are a lot of Pākehā out there that do support the language, and I commend you for that because we need everyone on board. Mm. Mm, what a message, bro. Um, well, anyways, bro, thank you very much, and um, yeah, make sure you watch this episode, subscribe, follow, like, all those sorts of things, and um, yeah, 